Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 6, Episode 2 Patterdale to Bampton The guards were kind to us on our final day in Lakelands. The high cloud ceiling left the stark mountaintops clear, sharp and magnificent. At all points of the compass, the stacked silhouette of russet and yellow fells rolled off towards the distant horizon. The steep climb across the face of Patterdale Common to the heights of Angleton Pikes was a long, hard slog. From far below, we were splashed by the glittering beams of silver sunlight, reflected flashes of pitch-black lakes all around. The higher we climbed, the scarcer the wildlife became, and the occasional bird song was drowned out by the ceaseless gurgle of running water. I love the stark contrast that suddenly darkened skies bring to brightly lit landscapes, the dramatic variation between the crisply coloured mountains against the brooding threat of storm clouds is a drama worthy of the gods, a spectacular reminder of who's in charge. From Stony Rig, I recognised a sign of the Eternal written deep in the landscape. Looking eastward, across the valley, a series of scimitar-bowed mountain ridges resembling the ochre and pea-green arms of a spiral galaxy revolved unimaginably slowly. It was a reminder of impermanence, even in geological time, which made me smile inside. At Angle Tarn it was easy to understand the bond of being that connects mankind with the land. No claim of contracted possession, only the oneness that extends back to the beginning. Our land, an extension of ourselves, the land we sprang from, the earth we're part of, the place where we belong and to which we will return. If Angleton were in outback Australia, it would be a sacred site, a corroboree place where a mob of Aborigines could spring energy and music from the land and waters of the lake. In that place, a solitary didgeridoo player on each promontory and on each small island within the lake could call upon their separate tribal souls as a mystical mantra to float and fuse into a primordial chant of unity. That rare ethereal moment of solitude was cruelly interrupted by the tell-tale rapid-fire clickety-clack of hard metal against fractured stone. The flinty-eyed Western Australian clattered into view. He was going hell for leather like a giant gangly insect closing in on its prey. Oz is batting well!' he yelled triumphantly. "'We'll do the palms and snatch the ashes from under their stuck-up noses!' Before taking another breath, and with a single-armed arcing action, he jammed a camcorder against his eye socket and was scanning the scene, collecting digital evidence that he'd been there and seen it all. As though as one, Peter and I took advantage of the distraction to hot-foot along the trail. Soon I was walking alone with only the murmuring mountain water for company. I later learned that Peter hadn't fared so well. Whilst I was taking a photograph, old Flinty Eye barged past me to get in front, Peter explained. It wasn't possible to get away, because he zigzagged along the path, leaving me no room to get by. All the while, the old boar was haranguing me with droning insights into his life experience and daring's do. As often happens on Lakeland mountaintops, the mist decided to pay us a flying visit. Peter used the sudden gloom to break free from his persecutor, 
Peter moved quickly and overtook me near the knot, which turned out to be an exceptionally busy section of the trail. The first surprise meeting was with a shapely, scantily clad fell runner who sang out pleasantries as she darted nimbly between the boulders to shimmer from sight as mysteriously as a mountain nymph. Our next encounter was an altogether darker experience. The distinctive clickety-clack sound signaled the approach of a two-stick walker advancing towards us at high speed. He emerged through the haze like a berserker phantom rattling downhill at a furious pace with his four-limbed charge a blur of demonic efficiency. He hurtled onwards with his eyes glued to the path at his feet. Never once did he glance either left or right. To all intents and purposes, we three were alone in the wilderness, and yet he uttered not a single word, nor did he acknowledge our existence in any way. He whizzed by with a keep clear, unexploded bomb, scowl written across his grim face. I believe he must have done something dreadful in a previous life, for which he was paying high-altitude penance. Up ahead we spotted three shadowy figures. Even in the gloom, the familiar lurching gait and the jaunty cap silhouette were the unmistakable jests of a unique species. Dewdrop fixed Peter and I with a suspicious stare, but said nothing. He'd attached himself to an extremely animated and intense couple who identified themselves as Canadians. It soon became apparent, however, that they were bogus bear trappers, who originated from the Isle of Wight. That gem gushed through the air in a deluge of words of which an overexcited commentator calling the final furlong of a close-run horse race would have difficulty bettering. The husband and wife slapstick double act must have overdosed on concentrated stimulants, for they were unable to contain either their hyperactive bellowing nor their need to outdo each other's vocal dominance. After a few minutes' full-volume expose of things Canadian and Isle of Whitish, a single level-eyed glance from Peter was enough to signal a longing for solitude. Stopping for a snack allowed the trio to walk ahead, disappearing from sight and hopefully out of earshot. The gloom thickened, reducing visibility to three or four yards. Thick fog, like snow, tends to deaden sound. It was surprising, therefore, that through the miasma the foghorn-voiced Canadians sounded close as though they had circled around behind us. We'll be there in a few minutes, his wife shouted. No, we won't, drawled the husband, keeping his better half on the straight and narrow. At this rate, we'll be there in three minutes and fifty-eight seconds. Ironically, the unwelcome flow of their duet tones saved us from taking the wrong trail. The map showed directions very clearly. We were to turn left at the next roadside cairn. In the gloom, there was neither cairn nor any other landmark to be seen. With the map showing one thing and the terrain another, I felt a touch disconcerted. The unexpected direction of the Canadians' voices prevented us from following the Roman road known as High Street and finding ourselves on the opposite side of the valley from where we wished to be. Coming up quickly from behind, we could hear the muffled chatter of the cricket supporters' group. To avoid entanglement, we set off along the path we hoped would lead us to the infamous Kitsy Pike. Mist had prevented us reaching several high vantage points right across the Lake District, and at the highest of them all, Kitsy Pike, we suffered the same fate. It was a vaguely eerie and unsettling experience, strolling blind towards the 2,600-foot peak, where sheer drops are commonplace. Shadowy shapes appeared through the silent mist, then vanished in an instant. 
The occasional drift of voices from ahead and behind gave me confidence that we were safely on the right track. The mist tried to lift, but couldn't find the energy. Again, I became concerned about our direction. Confusingly, voices called out to our left, well off the trail we were following. Moments later, I was astonished to see a column of ghostly cavalry float by. They glided in from the direction of High Rise and were cycling towards Patterdale. In the ceaseless pursuit of entertainment and pleasure, how wondrously adventurous and ridiculously creative we humankind are. As soon as the column of mountain bikes vanished, the mist ahead parted, revealing the unnatural-looking Horsewater Reservoir in the valley far below. I was greatly relieved to realise that we had followed the correct trail and weren't lost on the heights of Kidsey Pike. During the steep descent towards the reservoir, we encountered three figures sheltering in a nook eating lunch. It was Dewdrop and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. They looked very pleased with themselves, having navigated the heights and come through unscathed. I later learned they'd employed a handheld GPS satellite navigation system by which they always knew their position to an accuracy of a meter or two. Only then was the nitpicking three minutes and fifty-eight seconds understandable. Even though I can't say I enjoyed the times of being helplessly disoriented in dense fog, I do believe those periods of uncertainty to be preferable to following the dictates of an electronic navigational gadget. Then again, as one who has resisted the seduction of toting a colour-coordinated mobile phone, perhaps the truth is, I'm just an old fogey at heart. The sheer face of Rigdale Craig, immediately south of Kidsey Pike, is home to one of the few pairs of golden eagles in the British Isles. Although the fog prevented us from seeing the magnificent birds, the Pennines, a future objective, were just visible as a distant grey outline off to the east. On a grassy bank above the final precipitous descent, we met a middle-aged English couple who were scrambling up the rocky path. They warned us of the dangers posed by the slippery conditions, and told us of an Australian woman who, a few days earlier, had fallen, fracturing her face badly enough to require surgery. We heeded their warning and took extra care on the series of wet rocky outcrops. If the philosophical adage, pay attention to the working surfaces, is true, clambering down Kitsy House seemed like a good place to put it into practice. Hello! What's been keeping you? quizzed Helen, with great amusement. We've been waiting for hours. The three Dutch girls were finishing lunch on a grassy clearing. Would you like some coffee? one asked. What a civilised thought, I replied. Art drinks just fine. It was at that moment my misguided belief in the parallels between the Dutch and Anglo sense of humour went off the rails. Amidst great hilarity, they discovered that both flasks were empty. I'm not sure whether it was the fact they'd drunk all the coffee, or the look of disappointment on our faces, that they found so funny. The only certainty was, something sent a shockwave through their Dutch funny bones. To make amends, they tried to palm us off with a portion of Kendall mint cake, which is a compressed energy-packed sweet, greatly prized by Arctic explorers, whose normal diet consists of raw seal blubber. It was little surprise there were no takers. Horsewater is not a natural lake, but a man-made reservoir. There can be little doubt of the reservoir's picturesque appeal when full of water, but unfortunately that's a condition rarely encountered. When full, the water lapped wooded banks. 
In its normal state of depletion, the water is surrounded by a wide rim of sterile fractured boulders that bear scant resemblance to the unbroken harmony of a natural lake. Tramping the western shores of Hawes Water was the final experience shared with the Dutch delights. Two of them were accomplished pianists, one a devotee of Chopin, the other of Mozart. What a pity we'd missed the opportunity of hearing a concert on an old Joanna in a country pub. They were walking straight through to Shap, whilst we were heading for the tiny hamlet of Bampton. Each day from there on, the distance between us would increase. I'd miss their intelligent humour and their other Dutch attributes, which had often titillated my curiosity.